Well, recently I've watched uh, two different TV programs. Now, I need to, I, I need to say to you guys, I, I understand that they are silly, fictional TV programs, okay? Really no truth in them at all. But they're just silly fictional programs. But it's interesting. I watched two different TV programs. And it, they had almost the very same type of narrative. The first program that Heidi and I started watching is called Orville. How many have watched the Orville? Anybody seen that? It's like a spoof on Star Trek, okay? It's like a spoof on Star Trek, and so it's a, it's a comedy, and it's pretty funny, and it's okay. It's interesting. One of the, the shows, one of the programs... They, uh, well, they're programming, you know, it's a crisis. Every time you watch a show, you know, the team from the Orville, which is like the Star Trek spaceship, you know, they face a crisis. In one crisis, they go down to a, a world, and it's a different world, of course, other than Earth. They go to this world, and everybody has this kind of a counter on them. And you're gaining green points or you're gaining red points. Well, you're losing red points. And so what it is, it, it counts up their goodness. So if they're good to somebody, they're kind to somebody, and they, you know, do nice acts, they get green points. If they say something bad, or they're mean to somebody, and, you know, they're doing bad things, then they get negative points. And then once your counter, if it goes into the red, once your counter hits like 300,000 points, negative, because you're doing bad things and saying bad things and treating people badly... Once it hits 300,000 in the negative, they take you to this room and then they like vaporize you or torture you or something like that. Interesting narrative. Well, anyhow, in the other program, the other program that we happen across is called, the title is called The Good Place. Anybody have watched that yet? It's The Good Place. And Kristen Bell, her wonderful little personality, carries the whole program and she's just got this big personality. But the story of The Good Place, the narrative of The Good Place, is that four people die and they go to The Good Place. But then they find out that it's really The Bad Place. Okay? And they're just kind of taunting them like they're in The Good Place, but they're not really in The Good Place. And and they're in The Bad Place. And, And the reason why that they're in The Bad Place is because they didn't get enough points. You see, so here is heaven, keeping track of everybody, and we're scoring points about, you know, because of the things that we do, because of doing good things, or saying good things, or people treating people in a good way. And I I understand this is kind of, again, it's just silly, fictional programming. But I wonder how many people feel that, that having faith is not interesting. I mean, in our culture today, in society today, that having faith is not interesting because they feel that having faith or believing or following Christ is only about being a do-gooder. Or it is just about being good and doing good things. And of course, we know that the gospel, I mean, for those that are having church this morning, you've come to church for all of us here, we know that the gospel is, is much more than this. For us this morning, it may seem unnecessary to discuss something so mundane. I understand that. But I think the better we understand the world around us, the better prepared we are, you know, to deal with it. And the fact is, it seems that people are less interested in having faith in Christ in this time, in this culture that we're living in now, at least in the western part of the world, that people are less interested in having faith in Christ than ever before. And there's some reasons I want to share with you why I believe that culture is really kind of really rejecting the gospel, rejecting Christ. And then as I go through this list, there's two big ones that I really want to shine a spotlight on. And so just bear me, bear with me this morning. So the first one is this. Go ahead and throw that up there. The first one is the reason that society is rejecting the gospel in, in some situations is because of heartbreak. 
because people have been maybe hurt, you know, by a church or somebody, people from church have, have betrayed them. They've hurt them. And so they've stopped trusting the church. And so they've ran away. They're rejecting faith in Christ because of that heartbreak or experience. It's, it's like the story I read of one gentleman that was about 38 years of age or a little bit older. He wrote an article in one of our Nazarene magazines. And in there, he tells the story how he did not accept Jesus as his savior until he is about 38 years of age because of an experience that he had when he was five years old. He was five years old and his, his dad dies. And he, you know, he didn't articulate this, but he remembers feeling as a five-year-old, that young as a five-year-old, that, you know, if this is what God is about and how God is, you know, that he takes my daddy away, then I'm just not going to believe in God. I'm not going to have any part of this God thing. And so he remembers just carrying that bitterness around. And, and as we even follow the line of thought of, of those that are atheists, if you get down to it, and, and when you begin to peel the layers back, you begin to realize that there is this bitterness. There is sometimes even anger towards God that is preventing people to respond, of course, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one reason. That's not all, but that's just one. Another, another one the experts point out is uh, fatherless homes. Now, now, bear with me. I'm being really bold here. But, but homes uh, with no fathers or really bad fathering. A man by the name of Paul Vitz, he writes about the defective father hypothesis and suggests that a broken relationship with one's father makes it very difficult to accept uh, a loving father or the idea that there is a loving father in heaven and so it's warped because of the bad example that the father on earth has been in their life and so in this, this kind of relational type of understanding there is this resistance. Now Vitz, he developed this theory while studying the lives of history's great atheists including Hume, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Russell, uh, Sartre, Camus, Hobbes, Voltaire, Butler, and Fraud, all had fathers who died when they were very young, or fathers that were defective, so to speak, that they were, they were frankly, just bad fathers. And so and they end up being, being atheists. And so some of this might be, be some of the dynamic in regards to, you know, the, the, the family. And, and you can understand that. Here's another one they say, the experts say, that is causing people to reject the gospel, uh, social pressure. It's no longer, you know, cool. You know, it's no longer cool, you know, to be a Christian, to be, you know, a part of this thing that is called the gospel of Christ. And so we see this overarching reality in, in society that, you know, having a, almost even a bitterness towards Christianity is, is the more popular thing. And so the social pressure is affecting this and affecting the church and is affecting this of the church. So that's another one. Another one is, here's another one, throw up that, yeah, the cost of discipleship. I mean, oftentimes people, as they begin to understand that, you know, discipleship is not, you know, an easy path. It, it, is, it, is, it is a challenge. It's, it takes work. And, and the spiritual disciplines, you know, require commitment. And, and so they begin to see that there is this cost that we're to be a part of Bible study and committed to church and paying our tithes. And, and so what's it mean to be a disciple of Christ? And they begin to understand it and process that. And then this rejection happens because of the cost of discipleship. Just one of the, the simple reasons maybe people are rejecting the gospel. Here's another one. This is the big one. Uh, immorality. Immorality. This is the most common uh, that the experts say when they interview unbelievers. And when those unbelievers respond to the questions, they, 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 they say they like the idea of Jesus. 
They like this concept of a Jesus who is good and Jesus as the savior of the world. But, but then when it comes to the morality that they have to stop being promiscuous. And again, I'm just being bold here this morning, that they have to stop being promiscuous and in this, the sense of intimacy and all that. And if they have to give up all these things that they like and live a moral life, they say, well, wait a minute, I don't want to pay that big of a price. And so what they do is they just reject the faith altogether. They continue to embrace their immoral living. And, and so what happens, they say, well, rather than have faith, I'm just going to live the way I want. And that's very much some of the reasons of the rejection of the gospel. Now, the spotlight, I give a spotlight on two majors. Here's the first major one. The first major reason that people have become uninterested in the Christian faith. The first one here it is. And this is, again, it's just kind of holding us accountable, church. The first one is religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy. No matter what form it takes, religious hypocrisy is offensive to God and to others. That's why Brendan Manning famously said, and, and I want to get this right, so uh, I want to read it, the quote here. Here's, here's what he wrote. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Let me say that again. Listen to this, teens. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That, that we, say, we say one thing. We say, yeah, I have faith in Christ. You know, this, this is the gospel. But then the life is not reflecting the faith that we say that we have in Christ. And possibly we've lost a whole generation, you know, because of legalism and that idea, that generation I was a part of and the pressure that we, we lived under. And, and, and yet we're not seeing it in our own family, in our own homes, as we are saying we're Christians, but we're not living a Christian life. Amen. So there's some accountability there. That's the first one, religious hypocrisy. Here's the second big one that I want to spotlight this morning. And I don't like the way I'm saying this. And, and maybe you could come up with a little bit better phrase. Here's, here it is, though. Number two, religious overkill. Religious overkill. This is where people have seen and heard the gospel so many times, especially in, in the Western world, that they have become inoculated to the impact of, of the story, to the wow of the story. Man, Jesus did that. I, I never forget my trip to Zambia, Africa. My wife and I, Heidi and I, went to Africa and we were part of the Jesus film and we planted two new churches. And, and man, I'll never forget that experience as we drove out into the bush and there's grass that was eight feet taller, you know, or eight feet tall, a lot taller than I am. And, and there's this tall grass and we had megaphones and we went out from hut to hut and invited people, people to come. And we started playing the Jesus film on the screen, the story of Jesus. And it looked like there was just only 40 or 50 people that was going to show up. But pretty soon people heard the noise and they began to walk towards the area of the field that were showing the film. And pretty soon there was people sitting in the trees and hanging in the trees and on the ground. And there's like 500 people that showed up. And man, after the story of the Jesus film, my wife and I could not pray fast enough for people to accept Jesus Christ. In fact, everybody on the American team, they were having the very same experience. And, and people were getting saved one right after another because they're hearing the gospel for the very first time. Wow. You know, this idea of inoculation in the science world, it, it happens when, when people are given a vaccine. And vaccines work by using a dead or weakened form of a virus 
to help our immune system raise its guard against the real thing. Now, I had to look that up. I, I, I didn't know this. So they're given this dead or this weaker rendition of, of the virus. And so the immune system kind of builds up this, this, this strength, you know, to fight the real thing. That's, that's the process of inoculation. And so what the problem is, people encounter a weaker or false form of the gospel. And they hear all this false, these false messages of what the gospel is. And pretty soon there's this inoculation and, and they're not responding at all, at least in this, this Western world of America. They, they buy into false doctrine that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what are some of those false doctrines? Here it is. I want to share with you. Here's just a few. Uh, the first one, throw that up there. If you obey God, then he will forgive you and bless you. I mean, that sounds great, but that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel right there. What is the next one? The next one is, if you give money to Jesus, he'll make you healthy and wealthy. <laughs> Somebody over here in the first service says, I like that, but, but that's not the gospel. I mean, it sounds great, but that's not the gospel. The next one, the gospel, and this sounds good. The gospel is love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And again, that sounds fantastic. They're great commands, and they're the greatest commands. But you see, these ideas are not the gospel. Even the idea that Jesus was good and Jesus calls us by his very example to fight for justice and righteousness, you know, to live the Christian lifestyle. But it does not negate what Jesus himself and, and the Bible teaches us about what the gospel of Christ is. So the trouble arises, follow me, the trouble arises when people think that the gospel hinges on something that what we must do. You know, as long as we're doing these things or if we have this philosophy or practice in life, you know, we must hold on to this philosophy. That That's the gospel. That's not. Here's the truth. Again, I'm being bold this morning. Here's the truth. We cannot save ourselves from sin and death. You cannot save yourself from sin and death. The scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The gospel is not something that we can do for ourselves. The gospel is not moralism. It is not prosperity. It is not social gospel, even though there's great merit in that. The gospel is Jesus Christ and God's free gift of grace. Amen. For it is by grace you are saved by faith. It's not of yourselves, but a gift of God. And then look at John chapter 4. 14 verse 6. Jesus teaches that he and the Father are one, that we enjoy the Father's grace through the Son. Through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Amen. You see, the gospel is the most beautiful thing in the world when you understand what the gospel of Christ is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And we understand that the gospel is the loving father that was full of grace. He becomes flesh and dwells among us and he dies on the cross for us. And we experience that in Jesus Christ. Then the gospel, it becomes powerful and transformative. Our life comes alive because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel that this church believes. In and that we lift up to our world around us. Amen. So when your faith becomes a little less interesting, how, how do you make it more interesting? Share, share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Share who Jesus Christ is. I mean, as long as we are, or are putting our investment, our time in things that just look good 
and they sound good, but it's not about Jesus Christ, we are going to come up empty and we're going to come up missing the target. Amen. So how do we renew our faith? How how do we renew our faith? Well, Jesus gives us a plan for renewed faith in Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. And so I just gave you a really long introduction, so bear with me. So let's go to our text today. Go to Luke chapter 17. If you have the word with you this morning, I invite you to turn there. Go to Luke chapter 17, and we're going to begin there at verse 1. We'll read down there through verse 10. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast in the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to, to sin. So what is the millstone? You remember the millstone? It is, it is a large Usually a granite type of wheel that's maybe 12 inches thick. Some of them are this big. Some of them are like three feet wide. And they are turned. They're very heavy. Some of them a ton. And they're turned by a water wheel. Or maybe some oxen. And then they pour corn or dried corn or or wheat there. And it's a mill. It mills the corn and the wheat. And it, it grinds it and it comes out. So a millstone is very heavy. And so, you know, look at what this warning is about, that it would be better for us to tie that around our neck, throw ourselves in the sea, than lead even one of these little ones astray. What is that saying? We better understand what the gospel is. Amen. Then verse three, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother's sin, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So seven being the heavenly number, that pretty much forgive them forever, forgive them always. Then verse five, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plan or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you'll eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Precious Father in heaven, I thank you for the word today. Again, I just pray that you would speak and that, uh, that Lord, that you would just lift that one this morning that has come and, and they are just finding themselves wanting and they're needing, Father, something from you. And I pray, Lord, that you would just lift that one up, that you would meet that need and just give them direction, Father. Thank you for this word and the reading of it. We ask your blessing here today. We ask this in Jesus Christ's glorious name. Amen and amen. Now, now notice, go back to the passage again in the, in the text here. Notice this is only two chapters away from Jesus coming into Jerusalem as king. And so things are really moving along. I mean, they're clicking along at a pretty good pace. I mean, you have the story after story or scenario after scenario. And, and so Jesus is getting ready to predict his death for the third time. And, and so he has nothing to lose. I mean, this is, this is how I kind of, you know, interpret this. He has nothing to lose. And, and so there's this sense of urgency in the Savior that he's saying, man, I, I want these guys to get it. I want 
these guys to really, you know, grasp what it is that I'm, I'm sharing with, with them about the kingdom because the kingdom was coming and, and it seems like more than ever, Jesus now is saying, okay, here's the next step. It's a mature faith, wanting them to have this mature faith, a faith that stands when it may seem a little less interesting. So it's interesting in the passage that speaks to us. Look at verse 1. It, it, it reminds us as believers that things are going to go wrong. You know, and, and really we translate that, verse 1, things are going to happen, stuff's going to happen. I mean, you know, learn, Christian, mature faith, deal with it because things are going to go wrong. Verse 3 then, what do we translate that as? That, that people are going to wrong you. People are going to do things against you. And so we have to, you know, process this. So in the essence of our, our message here, he's saying your faith is going to be tested, church member. Teenager, your faith is going to be tested. What good is untested faith? I mean, because it's going to be tested and people are going to wrong you and stuff's going to happen to you. And, and we see that here in the passage. And, and it's good. The disciples are listening. The apostles are listening here because then they say something. And this is the key. Verse five. Look at verse five. Here's the key. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Amen. Increase our faith. And this is the beginning of Jesus' plan to renew our faith. Okay. So, yes, the faith or Christianity faith may be a little less interesting to the world. And there's some accountability there. But what happens, you know, what do we do when faith is a little less interesting to us? How do we renew our, our faith? Well, the first idea here that Jesus shows us is faith renewal happens when we have a true desire to grow in faith, when we have a true desire to grow in faith, easiest thing in the world is to do the easiest thing in the world. You know, faith is it's an exercise. We have this this muscle that God's given us called a faith muscle and we exercise the muscle and part of the exercise of the muscle of, of faith is is in life and in the experience of life we practice our faith you say well pastor how do we practice our faith we practice our faith by lifting our eyes to God and then when we are challenged because things will happen we lift our eyes to God when when people wrong us how do we exercise our faith we lift our eyes to God when 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 the money's not happening and it's not coming in how do we exercise our faith we lift our eyes to God. Amen. And so it's this process of exercising our faith that, that purges our thoughts and doubts and, and pronounces what's going to be before it ever happens. Because he's challenging us, remember the mulberry bush, to exercise our faith. Now, I need to say this. The very capacity of faith is, is something that God has given us. It's, it's the blessing the Lord has given us as his creation. He enables us to have faith. And not only that, it is a faith that promises that God is with us so that we never have to be alone. No matter what we're going through, no matter how dark that valley is, we have this promise that God is walking with us and that he will never leave us and that he will never forsake us. Folks, Faith is the most powerful force in the universe that God created and has given to us. And we see here the disciples were asking for an increase of their faith. So this is their desire for faith. Remember, the first idea here is the renewal of faith happens when we have a true desire to grow in faith. And so they're saying, you know, help us, help us with our faith, help us grow our faith. And, and, and maybe following Jesus is a little less interesting to those around us 
because people are waiting to see us exercise our faith. Maybe it's, it's a little less interesting and people are not running in here to be where we're at right now this morning or they're not saying, I want to live like you because maybe they're waiting for us to really exercise our faith and to live sacrificially and to live in such a way that it's countercultural and they're saying, wow, this must be real because we're exercising our faith and living our faith out in such a way that people are just like in awe because we're living in faith in that way. Amen. So... The first step or faith renewal happens when we have a true desire to grow our faith. The second idea here is that faith renewal happens when we decide to believe. Verse 6, Jesus replies, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. So, so the idea of the mustard seed, uh, teenagers, is that it's, it's, not, it's not the size of our faith. It's not the volume of the faith that we have but it's the idea that it is a faith that is a pure faith. It's a faith that, that's saying there's not even a, a speck of doubt. There's no doubt in the back of our mind, that little small voice. There, there's not even just microcosm of, of doubt because it's a pure faith. It's not the volume, not the size. It's that there is faith that is pure that God has given us. And it's this kind of faith that Jesus is affirming and, and teaching that if we decide to believe... This pure faith is part of, of the spiritual mature Christian. The one that is saying that I believe and I believe not in myself, but in what God is doing. And, and that becomes part of our vision that we can glorify God because of that faith. Now, in just a, a, a few minutes, not long from now, we're going to move into the fellowship hall and have a potluck. And we're going to talk about vision and talk about the future. And, and you see, faith is going to be a process and part of it. And, and, and it's not what we think we can do. Oh, yeah, I, I can imagine that we can do this. Man, I want to be a part of something that we cannot do, that it would only happen if God does it. Amen. That's the kind of faith that is pure faith that God calls us to. And so rather than being like a styrofoam cup being tossed to and fro by the waves back and forth. It is a faith that's rooted in, in, in the truth of who Jesus Christ is and his call upon our life. It's rooted in such a way that those roots become real and personal. And, and, and he says when you have this kind of faith, you can say to the rooted mulberry tree or the mountain or whatever it is, whatever it is you're facing, you can say, you know, be ye removed. And, and that challenge will be nothing compared to the capacity of the faith that God has given us. And I, I know I'm rambling. I, I know that. But I, I guess what I'm, I'm wanting to say to get out of my heart into you is, is it possible that our faith has gotten soft? That our faith has gotten soft. Now, bear with me. Listen to me. My, our faith has gotten soft where there's this been gradual compromise in our morality. There's gradual compromise in, in our ability to say, okay, I'm going to really trust God in this. And not in my own strength and not my abilities, but I, I'm going to trust God that, that I would not be led astray, that I would no longer compromise. And, and the problem is, is we oftentimes begin down a path that leads us into compromise. And the faith that we discovered at one point in life begins to leak out like water in the bottom of a cracked tub. And in that seeping and in that leaking, how can, we, how can we not keep this water in the air? How can we not keep our faith? 
because it's seeping out and there's just been this, this gradual compromise of our faith or maybe it's a compromise of our morals or maybe it's a compromise of our purity. And the Holy Spirit is, is speaking right now to us because this compromise has been happening and you know that the Lord is saying this morning, right now, that it's time that we stop the compromise and we really seek the holiness of God and we say, Lord, what, what, what does it mean to have faith in you? I mean, I'm asking really, what does it mean to have faith in God? And so renewing our faith, it, it is, yes, it's a desire. It's also making a decision to have faith. But here's the last movement. The last idea is that faith renewal happens when we realize we owe God everything. We owe God everything. In this passage, the servant serves. Look at the passage. The servant serves because he understands that salvation, even life itself, is a blessing from God. So Jesus was... Providing or preparing really the disciples, you know, to deal with the world. Remember, it's mature faith. There's this urgency. He, wa he wants them to get it, to get him there. It's a mature faith. And so he's saying, okay, here's how you are to be prepared for the world that you are going to encounter. And to show how serious Jesus Christ was, what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He dies on the cross. He, he dies on the cross and he gives his everything. And he shows us that we cannot, we cannot hold on to even one thing and be successful unless we're willing to give everything that we are to him. And the one thing that we hold on to is this faith in God, this faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. In fact, let me illustrate this way. Um, let me grab somebody this morning. Who, who can I grab real quick? Vic, come on up here. Victor, come on up here. Um, it, it's, here. Here's how I'd like to illustrate it. I, I was intending, I'm going to have you stand over here and kind of face me this, this way here. Okay, and I was going to bring in these really, these large, soft exercise balls. You know what I'm talking about? They're big. You guys know what I'm talking about. You with me? The large, soft exercise ball. And let's say I'm handing you one that is like five feet wide. I mean, it's a big exercise ball like that. And let's say I'm, I have one, the same size, big five-foot-wide type of exercise ball. And I, I have this ball, and here's the goal. I'm going to throw this one, this big one here. I'm going to throw this to you, and you have to catch it. Okay. okay, you already have one in your hands. You have to catch this ball. In fact, if this ball hits the ground, you die. Silly fictional TV program. Okay, so that you die. You have to catch this ball, okay? All right, so I'm going to throw it to you. You ready? You have to catch it. What do you do? Oh, okay. So you let go of the ball that you have. You catch the ball that's coming at you. You maybe see it. Give Victor a hand real quick. You see, I think that, that, you know, so often we want to hang on to the one thing that we want. We want to hang on to our understanding. We want to hang on to, you know, our way of living life. But you see, the challenge of pure faith like that of a mustard seed is that we let go of what we think and what we want and what we believe. And we receive in faith all that God has for us. And we receive that and we hang on to it and we make that kind of decision to say, God, I want your faith in my life. I want your presence in my life. I want your glory in my life. I want to lift you up, Lord, in, in my life. And I want to lift you up in my church 
I want to lift you up in my family. And I'm going to let go of these things that I've been hanging on to a long time. Because I want to have faith in Jesus. I want to have faith in not what I can do. I want to have faith in what God can do. Amen. And to really have that kind of faith, I believe you have to, you have to let this one go. Now listen, you're saying, well, pastor, you're exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. Think of what Jesus did. Jesus, he had to let it all go. And he did. I want to invite you to let it go. To receive all the faith that Jesus has for you. Whatever that dark valley is, whatever those obstacles are, whatever it is that you're dealing with, maybe it's addiction, it's temptation, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's jealousy because you're jostling for position. I want to invite you to let that go and say, Jesus, I want your faith. I want you in my life. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Precious Father in heaven, I thank you for answered prayer. I thank you, God, that you are just revealing to us how much you really love us when you went to the cross and you died for us. And I pray that, Father in heaven, that you would just, at this moment, I pray, God, that you would just move that one person's heart, that young person's heart, that old person's heart. I pray that you would move that middle-aged person's heart and that, Father, that, that we would let this thing go that does not belong and we would let our temptations go and let this, this, this weak faith go. We don't want a part of weak faith anymore. We want strong faith and faith in you, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you'd speak to that heart right now. I pray, that, Lord, that you would set that one free, that they'd receive all that you have for them and that we'd no longer be worrying about our position that we no longer be worrying about what we can do. But Jesus, we just receive all that you have for us today. Lord, it's your faith that we want. It's your faith that we reach out for. It's your faith that we want to grab at. And so, Father, I believe that there's some here today, young or old, that are saying, Jesus, I want to receive all the faith that you have for me. Jesus, I want to receive that faith right now. I want to have faith in you, Jesus, not faith in myself. And Jesus, I need to be set free that my faith is 100% rooted in you, Christ. No question in our heart. Pray that this morning. Precious Father in heaven, I pray for, Lord, that, that person this morning, that man or that woman, that young person, that middle-aged person, Lord, that person that's been lonely, that person that's been racked with trouble one right after another, and they're just saying, my faith is weak. I pray, Father, that you would just, Lord, just infuse them with a new faith. May they be reminded about their faith of goodness, purity, serving you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just set that one heart that has been, been, Lord, just in the dark. Set that heart of fire. May they feel your presence. May they embrace your faith, Father, today. Just, I pray that you would answer their prayers as we're praying right now. Our heads bowed. Nobody looking around. Nobody talking to each other.